Why are you here? <laughs> now, I don't really mean this like an existential way, right? I don't mean like, oh, why, why are you, you know, why are we here? What is my purpose? I'm not talking about that, but why are you here? Why are you here on a Sunday morning? Why are you here at church? I know it's kind of provocative, but maybe it shouldn't be because I think everything we do, we ought to do for a reason. I don't think we should be doing anything. I don't know about you. My life is so busy. Everything I do ought to have some good reason for it. So why are you at church? You know, it could be for a variety of reasons. For some of you, you might say, well, I grew up in church and I've always gone to church and so here I am going to church. That's what I've always done. Some of you might say, well, I got these kids and I know there's good values that come through in church and that's a good thing for my kids and so I'm at church for my kids. Some of you might say, well, I really want community. I'm really interested in relationships. I want to be close to other people. Okay, that's fine. All of these are good things. Um, some of you maybe are going, hey, I know there's this God and I want to be close to God. I'm in pursuit of who is this God and I want to get close to him. Or some of you may say, I've got some really difficult questions. Why am I here? When you look at this call, you go, well, that's the question, not the way you were asking it, but it's a question I have. Why am I here? What is my purpose? Who is this God? What am I supposed to do with my life? There's tough questions. You're looking for those, etc. So why am I here is a really good question. And I can turn that question on myself too and say, why am I here? Right? Like many of you, I was one of those kids. I grew up going to church. My parents were Christians and they took me to church every week. They were deeply committed to seeking God. They still are in their 70s. But the time came for me, and for many of you, it came for you at some point along the line. And maybe for some of you, the time is coming for you now to ask this question. Why am I here? You might put it this way. Is going after God worth it or not? We have to ask that question. Is going after God worth it or not? Does he have anything worthwhile to say or do for me or not? It's a difficult question in some ways, but we need to ask it of ourselves. And now obviously I decided that he's worth it. <laughs> I decided he does have something to say for to me. That's why I'm here. I'm not here for my health. I'm here because I want to be here. And so that begs the question, why? Why? Why is God worth it? How can I know that God is worth my time and effort? How can I know that? How can I know that? And that's another good question to ask. And I have one very simple, very clear answer as to how I can know why God is worth it. And that answer is the Bible. The Bible is the answer. The book. It is the book. I've read it over and over daily, almost every day. Not every day, but almost every day for over 30 years. I've wrestled with the Bible not physically, right? I didn't grab it and roll around the mud or something like that. But I've wrestled with the concepts and the words and the passages and the connections and all those things. I've wrestled with it. I've asked a whole lot of tough questions. I've sought out a whole lot of answers to those tough questions. And after all of that, I'm convinced of one thing very clearly when it comes to the Bible. When we read the Bible, we only have two choices. And those two choices really boil down to these. First, it's either a total waste of time... Or, it's God's very words, spoken to us, spoken to me, spoken for my instruction. There isn't any middle ground when it comes to the Bible. There's no middle ground. 
but it's this popular idea in our culture to say, oh, there's kind of this middle ground when it comes to the Bible, right? Some examples of this where people will say, oh, well, Jesus was a great teacher. Trying to find this middle ground between this is a total waste of time and these are God's very words. Well, Jesus was a great teacher and the Bible has a whole lot of good stories with a lot of good morals and we should maybe listen to some of it. And well, people would say, I, I don't agree with everything, but, but there are parts that I like. People trying to find middle ground. But these simply don't work. They don't work for two main reasons. The first one is that in the Bible, Jesus claims to be the God of the universe. Jesus claims to be the God of the universe. Okay, well that doesn't leave us a whole lot of middle ground. Either he is, or it's all junk. The Bible itself also claims to be the very words of God. That's the second reason. Jesus claims to be God, the Bible claims to be God's words. Either it is, or it isn't. There's no it kind of is, or he kind of was. It either is, or it isn't. It's either a total waste of time, or it's God's very words. There's no middle ground. So each one of us has to decide personally, what do I believe? I look at this book, what do I believe about it? Is it God's words, or is it a waste of time? And so that's why we're doing this series, because it's good for us to go back into what we believe and why we believe it, to get rooted in what we do. Our church, as a church, we believe that these are God's words. Surprise, surprise. That's what we believe. Why do we believe it? That's what we're going to talk about in this series. We've got to resolve to be people of the book, people of this book. If these are God's very words, then we need to be people of this book. We need to go after it, or else... Why are we here? We're just wasting our time. If it's not God's words, we're wasting our time. You know, even the Bible, one of the authors of the Bible says it. He says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul, he says, hey, look, if this isn't the truth, we're giving our lives to something that is a waste of time. It is a waste of life. It is a waste of energy. If this is not true, we should pack up and all head out and join the masses who are having brunch right now. That's what we should do if it's not true. And so we're going to start into this series and we're going to look at a whole bunch of things over the coming weeks about why we believe this is true. And so today we're going to start with three attributes of the Bible that make it unique. But don't worry, there's not three. There's four more and I'll tackle those next week. But we'll go through just three today and I think these are really, really important. So that being said, let's just dive into them. The first attribute of the Bible that I think makes it unique is that it is infallible. Now, of course, I got there on the screen. The definition of infallible means incapable of making mistakes or being wrong. Now, think for a second. Close your eyes and think for a second. What else can you think of in the universe that is infallible? Probably nothing, right? <laughs> you can't think of anything, right? I can't think of anything. I was thinking about this all week. What else is there that is infallible? Now, you know, we can think about sports and we go, oh, well, you know, <clears throat> anyone here do bowling? No one, no one's bowling. Yeah, bowling. You ever bowled a perfect game, Kenneth? No, right? No one's here bowled a perfect game. Anyone know someone who's bowled the perfect game? Yeah, you did. No, you didn't. You did not. 
So you know someone who did. All right, so a perfect game is when you get like, what, a 300 or something. And it's like you knock down every pin, every single option you have, and you have a perfect game, right? Or if you like baseball, there have been perfect games pitched where there's, what, no, no runners, no hits, nothing, right? It's, it's like perfect game, right? You can have that, but then you've sort of said, oh, well, infallibility is sort of contained into this very limited sphere of the bowling alley or the baseball diamonds. But you think about it, there's not really anything else in the world that's infallible. So this is a really big claim. It's really bold for the Bible to say it's infallible. It's really kind of bold for me to say, hey, the Bible is infallible. It's incapable of making mistakes or being wrong. And this sets up a conflict, right? Because there's so many in the world who will say, no, the Bible is full of contradictions. Have you ever heard that? Heard that quite a bit. It's very popular. You can go on the internet. You can see it all over the place. But on the other hand, the Bible itself says the law of the Lord. The Bible is perfect. Psalm chapter 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect. Now see, again, here we are. It's either one or the other. If it has contradictions, the Bible is wrong about itself. If it has contradictions, it's not perfect. It's not perfect. It says it's perfect, and it's not. So it's a total waste of time. So it's got to be one or the other. And you say, okay, that's fine. Why? Why must the Bible be infallible? Why must it be infallible? Why can't it have some things wrong with it? Well, I'll walk you through the logic of it. First thing is that we know that God himself is infallible. That's part of the definition of God. You can't have God if he's fallible. If he's fallible, he's not God. He must be perfect. He must not make errors. He must not do anything wrong. That makes him God. The Bible echoes this, Matthew 5, 48. Jesus himself says, your heavenly father, your God, God is perfect. Psalm eighteen thirty. David, he says, as for God, his way is perfect. Perfect. God is infallible. We know that to be true by definition. The second thing, we say, okay, God is infallible. Well, the Bible comes from God. How do we know the Bible comes from God? The Bible tells us it comes from God. Jesus himself says, the words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. He's saying, this is from God. Paul the Apostle in 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is breathed out by God. If it's breathed out by God, it doesn't come from anywhere else. It's come from God. It's from Him. So you take that and you follow the logical conclusion, which is, if God is perfect and the Bible comes from God, therefore the Bible must be perfect. See that logical progression there? God, by nature, could not author an imperfect book because He's perfect. So it's either perfect or it's a total waste of time. Now let's go back to that accusation that the Bible is full of contradictions. And I'm sure we've all heard this, and maybe some of you even think that yourself, and that's totally fine. The first thing we need to do when we address this is state the following, that the Bible is coherent, it makes sense, it's consistent, it has a consistent story throughout, and it is actually easy to understand. Yes, there's deep thoughts, and there's a lot that's to it, but you don't have to be a scholar to read the Bible. My kids, even my little kids, they read the Bible and they understand the Bible. Now, if you hear this, oh, the Bible is full of contradictions, I encourage you, graciously and with patience, ask the person who says says that, say, well, have you read the Bible? (laughs) Now, maybe they have, and that's great, but so many times people will say that and they'll go, no, well, I read that somewhere. (laughs) Okay, you're just sort of parenting, parenting something you've heard before. You have to dig into it. 
You can't just say, oh, well, there's this obvious glaring thing. You have to dig into it to try to see what are these contradictions. The fact that you have to dig into it means it's coherent and consistent and easy to understand. Now, think for a second if we want to draw a parallel. Think, think about everybody here probably watches movies, TV shows. You watch something on the screen somewhere at some point. Have you ever seen those scenes? Like, if you know anything about filmmaking, right? Like, they typically shoot a conversation between two people, and they shoot it from one angle so that you can see one person. And they do the whole conversation. They do a few takes of it, right? And then, when that's done, they switch. And the camera turns over to the other side, and they're facing the other person, and they do that, right? But sometimes you get these, like mistakes, right? Where they're like hugging and then they're not hugging in one shot, you know, and they, they cut back and forth between shots. Have you ever seen that, right? Or they're sitting on a sofa and the arm's up and the arm's down, the arm's up, the arm's down. You're like, what's going on? It's this sort of contradiction, right? And why does that happen? Well, because it's really tough, even in that controlled environment, to create two things that are exactly the same from two different points of view, right? And we sort of chuckle, at least I do. I don't know if you guys chuckle when you see those things, you're like, oh, that was like different. We never ever turn around and say, well, that movie was worthless and unbelievable because there was this difference in perspective and things were a little different from shot to shot, right? We don't ever say that. So let's take that back to the Bible. We've got to remember this about the Bible. The Bible wasn't just one guy wrote at one point in time. It's 66 books from 40 different authors written over the course of more than 1,500 years. You understand how amazing it is that so, like, I don't even know if, like, two of us could sit down and together write a book in the same week that would be coherent and consistent and easy to understand. Much less these people over this amount of time put all of this together. And the fact that that happens, shouldn't we expect some differences in maybe some minor points? When things are expressed from different viewpoints, from different individuals, from different eras of history? That might be reasonable. And let's be really clear about this, that a difference does not equal a contradiction. I think that's an important point for us to have, is that when you go and you look up these Bible contradictions, and like I said, you can go on the internet and you can look for all these different ones of what are some contradictions, and you can look them all up. Almost all of them have to do with differences in small facts, differences in perspectives, and maybe differences in language. But here's the good news. If you look up these contradictions, even though they're in these small things, in these small ways, you can also look up answers. <laughs> and where people have spent a lot of thought and a lot of time to say, well, actually, that's not really a contradiction. Here's the answer, right? And I'm not going to go into those because there's many of them and so much out there. But I encourage you this. We, as a church, we, as people of the book, are going to strive to ask and answer tough questions and look for honesty in this. So I say, hey, you think the Bible is full of contradictions or someone says the Bible is full of contradictions? You go, great. Let's look that up. Let's look it up. But remember, difference doesn't equal contradiction. And so our second attribute today after infallibility, and I think it connects a little bit to that too, is that the Bible is inerrant. The Bible is inerrant. Now we don't use that word a lot in our culture like, I don't know if you were texting inerrant. I'm not sure if it would come up on like sort of the autofill and it might take a while till you get to the end or something to do that. But it just means without error. Without error. And so we go, okay, well, how's that really different from infallibility? He said that was like nothing wrong. This is no error. Well, inerrancy really speaks more about precision. 
How precise is something? As it says there, how precise is the Bible? Is it precise? And this, of course, connects back to those contradictions. And again, most of those contradictions are really about precision, not about content. Right? Uh, one example, just to give an example of those contradictions, is people will, will point to the story of Jesus' resurrection, which, of course, is a really important story to us. Right? Probably the most important story, because if Jesus hasn't come back from the dead, what are we doing here? Right? So there's this story, and we have four different versions of it, recorded in one in each of the Gospels. And some of you have probably heard this, maybe you haven't, but you'll see some of the details about that moment where they come to the tomb and find out that he's come back from the dead and he's not there anymore, some of the details are different. One account talks about there being one angel. Another account describes that as a young man, not as an angel. Another one just says that there's two angels. Another one says that Jesus himself shows up. Well, who was it? Well, we, we know it's some women. In one account, it's one woman. Another account, it's two women. Another account, it's multiple women. We go, oh, there's some details here. Well, are these contradictions? These seem to be problems, Right? Well, I don't think they're really problems. Because let's think about precision for the minute. And I think everything, everything in the world has some level of imprecision. So if I go to you and I say, how old are you? Right now in your mind, you just came up with a number. Right? Everybody's got an age. I say, how old are you? What are you going to tell me? I'm 45, right? I don't know how old you are. You'll say that. I go, well, your birthday might be tomorrow, but you just said you were 45, right? Because you're like, oh, I want to sort of be in that year. You didn't say, well, I'm 45 years old, 45 years, 364 days, 8 hours and 3 minutes and 23, right? You didn't go to that level of precision. You went to an acceptable level of precision. Or if I said to you, Oh, you know, good to meet you. Good to see you this morning. Could you remind me, how far away do you live from here? What would you say? 20 minutes? 30 minutes? 10 minutes? 5 miles, maybe you know the distance. But if you say 5 miles, did you say 5 miles, 454 feet, 3 inches, and 2 quarters? <laughs> right? You didn't say that. You didn't take that level of precision. That was an acceptable level of precision. You know, even things that we think, oh, are probably really exact, like the atomic clock up there in Boulder. You know, it has a little bit of, there's always a little bit of error in that, in those kind of things. So, when we think back to the Bible, what level of precision is acceptable for the Bible? When the authors were writing the Bible, what level of precision were they aiming for? And by extension, what level of precision did God, who is the ultimate author, want to have with the Bible? And is it precise enough for us to say it is inerrant? See, we don't hold ourselves to very high levels of precision when it comes to most things, right? Even in science, we go, oh, scientists, they're very precise, but every study, every research, everything has a margin of error. Everything, none of it is, oh, it's just perfect, and this is it, and we know what it is. So what's fair and reasonable for the Bible? What is an acceptable margin? What is an acceptable margin for the Bible? Well, when we look at other ancient writings, and really when we look at all kinds of writing, all of them have a variety of things going on. Some of those things include unrefined grammar, right? We would assume that whoever's written an ancient manuscript or written a book or written a Bible isn't necessarily the scholar of scholars when it comes to grammar. So they may have unrefined grammar of how they expressed it. Sometimes people describe stories and they don't use the proper chronology. They still say how things happen, but the order of things may not be in exactly the right way. Sometimes people use imprecise quotes and they go, well, he kind of said this thing... 
Or he quoted something and he didn't get it exactly down to the word, right? Those things happen in writing. Some people use figures of speech. They say the sun rose. Well, we know the sun doesn't actually rise, right? The earth is turning and the sun stays in the same place in the sky. Like, we understand, but we accept that. Other people use generalized descriptions. And, of course, the Bible has these things as well. One of example of those is in Mark chapter 1, verse 5. Talking about John the Baptist, and he says, All the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by John. So did this really mean... Like, we don't read this and say, oh yeah, this means every soul, every living soul in this entire nation headed out to this river so that they could hear John and be dunked in the water. Like, there's not enough hours of the day in the years that he was alive probably to do that many baptisms. So we know that's not what's going on, but we accept that level of imprecision to say, okay, it was giving us the idea of what was happening. And so again we ask, there's all of those elements, the grammar, the narratives, the quotes, figures of speech, these kind of descriptions, and we say, do these imprecise things fall within a margin of error that would allow us to call the Bible inerrant? And I think the, the answer to that is yes. The margin is very small. Again, the Bible asserts truth. The Bible tells a story. And it tells in that telling a story, it constructs a theology that is consi- consistent, coherent, easy to understand, written over the course of hundreds and hundreds of years. I think another way we could put it is this. The apparent difference in the number of angels recorded, for an example, the apparent difference in the number of angels recorded to be at Jesus' tomb doesn't call into question the veracity of the claim that he rose from the dead. Just as your imprecise claim of being in your 40s doesn't call into question the fact that you're 45 years old. We go, okay, there is an acceptable margin here where things are together. And that being said, it's still worthwhile for us to ask that question. How accurate is the Bible? How accurate is the Bible? Well, let's ask that question. There's a few tests we can have to determine how accurate is it. There's three tests. The first one we can use is what we call the bibliographic test. That's a big word. Anybody ever do a bibliography on something you've written? Right? You're saying, okay, what is it written? Are we reading now what was originally written? That's really the question. Are we reading now? Is what we're reading in our Bible what was really written? Well, there's tons of research and articles on this. If you want to go dive into that world, you're welcome to. I can point you in the right direction if you want. Here's just a couple of facts when we think about the New Testament. Just the New Testament. The Old Testament is very similar in this. The New Testament. We have more than 24,000 ancient copies, ancient copies of New Testament manuscripts. Now, there's all kinds of criteria to determine what's an ancient and what's not. You know, we, we look at other things. We say, oh, we got other ancient manuscripts out there of other ancient writers. And you go, well, what's 24,000? That doesn't mean anything to me. Well, you know the next, when you like stack up all the ancient authors and all the ancient books, the next highest one, as we have a bunch of copies of stuff from good old Homer, right, in Greece? Right, Homer, you read some of those books? You know how many copies of his stuff we have? 2,000. The next highest is Aristotle. We all go, oh yeah, Aristotle. He's got some good philosophy. He had some good things to say. Do you know how many copies of Aristotle's stuff we have? It's like 50. So we have 24,000 copies. And when you look at those, 99.5% of what we have in the modern Bible matches the originals. That is an incredible margin of error. Now you go, well, what about that last 0.5%? Well, scholars have determined, hey, we can use textual criticism and say, yeah, we can really understand what it was supposed to be based on that. 
So it's very, very accurate. And then, of course, these manuscripts date within 200 years of original writing. And you go, well, that seems like a long time. Well, that's because we live in the Internet era where everything dates from today. If it's not from today, you're like, well, there's probably some newer news here we could get. But that is very close. Most ancient manuscripts, like the Aristotle and the Homer and all that stuff, is more than a thousand years between the time it was supposedly first written and the first manuscript we have. The Bible stuff is within 200 years. Some of it is within 100 years. That being said, that's a good test. It's a good test. Are we reading what was originally written? We can be very confident that what we have, what you have in your Bible and on your phone, is what was originally there. A second test is an internal test. It's important to say, well, what does the Bible say about itself? Does the Bible say it's supposed to be historic, or does it just say, oh, this is just some poetry? Well, those of who've read the Bible understand the Bible says it's historic. Most of what it says is eyewitness accounts. Almost everything is described as an eyewitness account. One example of that is very clear in Luke chapter 1. Verses 1 through 5, he says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, he's talking about Jesus, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. The Bible says in this place and many other places that it is a historical account of true events. So what does it say about itself? It says it's historical. The third thing is an external test. Well, fine if the Bible says that about itself. What do the other sources say? If we look to the other texts and the other writings and the other history all around it, does it confirm or deny what the Bible says? This is very important, especially because the Bible says it is historical itself. So are there these external historical records? Yes. Yes, there are. It's good news. Yes, there are. The first one is in writings. There's many, many writings from other sources in those times that confirm things that happened in the Bible. Here's one of them, this cool-looking dude with a sweet turban, Josephus. He was a Jewish historian, and he wrote this book, Antiquities of the Jews. It was a historical book, a historical record written in 93 AD, which is pretty soon after Jesus was alive. And you go, okay, that's cool. Well, he wasn't biased. He wasn't a Christian. He wasn't trying to promote something about Jesus. He was just recording the history. Here are the things we can confirm. And there's many more, but here's a list of some things we can confirm that he substantiates. Jesus, John the Baptist, James the Apostle, Herod the King, the existence of the Sadducees, the existence of the Pharisees, the existence of the priests Ananias and Caiaphas, and so on and so forth. That's just one example of somebody who confirms it's in the Bible. We can also look beyond writings and we can look to archaeology. In the 19th century, there was all this criticism of, well, there's all this stuff in the Bible, but we don't have any proof of any of this stuff that's there. We haven't found it. Well, then archaeologic methods got really good in the 20th century, and they've gotten really good, and they've started to uncover year after year after year, and there's been this explosion of discoveries and they confirm the historicity of the Bible. This here is one example. This was found last year. Well, it was found a while ago, but it was confirmed last year as they did this research on this. They were able to see that this is a seal ring of Pontius Pilate. For a long time, they thought, yeah, there's no Pontius Pilate. We don't have any record of him. That was just some made-up thing. Well, then they found something back in the 60s that was like, oh, look, there's a stone that says Pontius Pilate. But then here, they found this ring that describes Pontius Pilate 
It says he's the governor of the region. And you go, hey, look, we found something. Now, he didn't wear this. They don't think he wore this. This was probably too common. It was like one of his soldiers or something like that. But it's proof that he existed. That's just one example. Something from last year. It's happening all the time. Archaeology is confirming. It's verifying names, places, events, titles of leaders, and so on and so forth. And so ultimately, I think it's reasonable to conclude that the Bible is astonishingly precise. It is astonishingly precise, and that makes it incredibly unique. So we said it was infallible. We said it was inerrant. Our third and final attribute we're going to talk about today is that it's complete. The Bible is complete, or we could say nothing needs to be added to it. Nothing needs to be added to it. So we'll look at this from two angles today. The first one is we can ask that question, okay, so you said 66 books. Are those all the books we need? How do we know those are the right books? How do we know those are the ones that should go in? How do we know there weren't other ones? Well, we can focus on the New Testament. And there's been some criteria to decide what goes into the Bible and what doesn't go into the Bible. There's these standards. We talk about the Old Testament has standards. New Testament standards are this. First one is anything in the New Testament had to be authored by an apostle or by someone who is a close associate of the apostle. Why? Well, because then when they knew it was an eyewitness account and not just somebody told somebody who told somebody who told somebody who then wrote it down. It was somebody who was there or somebody who was with somebody who was there. I could get that information. It's accountability. Now, you might say, okay, hold on, time out. What about the book of Hebrews? We don't know who the author of Hebrews was. You go, yep, that was correct. We don't know who the author of Hebrews was. But it's very clear from how it was written, it was written by somebody who was either present or was with somebody who was present with Jesus. And so it's been accepted. In addition, because of the second reason... Which is that there is a consensus or a recognition by the early church. When I early church, I don't mean in 1000 AD. I mean in the first and the second century. It was consensus. These scriptures, they said, yep, this was it. Hebrews meets that criteria. All the other ones we have as well. A third standard is that it's consistent. Is this scripture, is this book consistent with all the rest of scripture, including the Old Testament? Can we look at it and say, yeah, nope, there is a consistency here. And when all those standards are met, that's how something has made it into the New Testament. Now some will say, well, wait a second. Wait a second, I've heard there's like these other books. I heard there's these other books. Why aren't those in the Bible? Things like the Acts of John, the Gospel of Peter, Paul's letter to the Laodiceans, and so on and so forth. Well, simply put, those books didn't meet these criteria. They didn't meet the criteria. They were never accepted. They can't be accepted. They've never been put into the canon of Scripture. I like this graphic. It might be a little bit hard to see. It's fine if you can't read it. I'll explain what's going on in this graphic. So, the top, each row, each bar across the top represents the, the books of the New Testament as we have them today. And you'll see there's a key at the top, and if it's green, we'd say it's canonical, which means part of the Bible and accepted and meets these criteria. And the redder it gets, the more we would say it's rejected. And then this is looking through history. So here we've got, I'm not sure if I can read them, but these are like the centuries going through time, like 100, 200, 300, 400, 500, 600, 700, 800. And you can see, what's this one that's here? Oh, that's Hebrews. So there was this point at about sort of in the 200s where there was all this question of, well, is this part of the canon or not? Is this really scripture or not? 
And then they sort of figured out, wait, yep, it really is. And it's been that way. And there was these other sort of the later epistles that there was a little bit of doubt as to how they were in those early centuries, but it's since for now, and it hasn't changed here. This is like 800. This graphic could go on like over here somewhere, right? Here's all those other books I was talking about. These other books were never considered. They were never considered the same as scripture. They were interesting accounts and interesting stories, but not scriptural, not considered the word of God. You may not be able to see this. A couple sort of light green spots on a couple of these where people thought, maybe that is, and they quickly rejected that and moved on. So you could see it's not that things have just been changing and changing all over time. It's the same thing we've had for thousands of years. That graphic is helping, helpful to me. So that's one side. What criteria were, were used? Is it complete? I think we can look at it and say, well, in that sense, it's complete. But there's another issue. And some people can say, okay, well, is God is living and active. God is around us. God is working us. He sent the Holy Spirit to live inside those who believe. What about personal revelation from God? Isn't that important? How does that compare to the scripture? Right? I go, that's a good question. It's a really good question because we can say, if God is all-powerful, God is all-knowing, God is all-present, can't he just speak to me directly? I think he can. But this idea has really developed into this sort of new philosophy that's become very popular here, especially in the United States in the past couple decades or so. And it's this idea that God can speak to you directly, and that that word is the same, equal, or if not greater, than the words of the Bible. I don't know if you've ever heard that. That's a value that goes around. And there's really a spectrum of that. And some people are way down sort of the spectrum on one end. And they say, you know what? The Bible was written kind of in that era. We sort of need new revelations so that we can have a new Bible today that speaks to us who we are here now, Right? And we look at that, we say, well, that's probably going to violate this criteria we talked about. There's some people who are there, but most people are not really that far down that spectrum. They're more sort of back at the other end. And I think the place that most of us in our day-to-day life as we're walking around are going to encounter this the most is when some well-intentioned person says to us, the Lord told me... And then they say something else. And they say something else and they follow that with something that is not a verse or not supported by things in the scripture. The Lord told me. And then they tell you something and you're like, is that in scripture? Is that clear or not? How do we know? Well, can the Lord speak to you? Yeah, I believe the Lord can speak to you. But I go, what is going on? So I was thinking about this and I go, well, there's maybe some ways it could help us as we encounter this sort of thing and understand that the Bible is complete and the Bible is the word and it's sort of the guide rails that we guide things by. And I thought, well, let's come up. I came up with some statements where someone could say, well, the Lord told me, the Lord spoke to me, the Lord communicated with me, and we can decide, are we going to accept or reject those? Right? When we reject something someone says, we don't reject them. We just go, yeah, I don't accept what you said. Right? That's fine. So here's the first statement. So somebody comes to you and he says, the Lord told me not to steal from my employer. Do we accept this or we reject it? Well, we know the Bible says not to steal. And we go, well, that's very clear. I can trust that the Lord told you that. Yeah. Accepted. Right? Okay, that's good. Second statement. You know, through prayer, you know, someone could come to me and say, through prayer, you know, I sense the Lord wants me to join in with you in this church, on this work, in the things that you're doing in your life. Well, can we accept that or reject that? 
Well, we can go back to Scripture. We know Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. And we go, okay, so we're here on the kingdom of God. And we're doing this work, and there's good here, and there's no sin here. And could the Lord have really, through prayer, shown you this? Yeah, I can accept that, right? Okay, here's another example. The Lord told me to leave my wife for another woman. Right? Someone could do that. I've heard of this happening. No one's ever said that to me. I've heard of this happening before. But you look at this and you go, okay, what do we think? We think, no, the Lord didn't tell you this. <laughs> because it says, don't commit adultery. I hate divorce, right? Oh, are there reasons for divorce? Yeah, Jesus even gives us reasons. But this isn't one of them. We go, okay, the Lord didn't tell you this. I don't care if an angel showed up and told you this. It's not an angel. It's somebody else. So we can reject that, right? Now, here's one that's maybe a little more tricky. People come to you and say, you know, the Lord gave me a word. And the Lord told me to tell you. And then they, they say something, right? This happens a lot. I've heard this a lot, actually, in my life. And I want, when someone says, they told me to tell you, I'm going to go, stop! First question, before you say anything else, is the thing you're going to say, is it found in the Bible? Is it in the Bible? Can we clearly point to the Bible and say, yeah, there's a verse there, there's a scripture, there's a thought, or there's a principle? You know, the Lord gave me a word and told me to tell you, don't leave your wife for another woman or something, right? You go, oh, okay, alright, that's fine. But if not, I'm just going to reject it. I reject it because I don't know where it came from. You can say it's from the Lord. I don't know it's from the Lord. I don't have any confidence in that. Right? But even if it is from the Lord, we have to ask this. If you have a verse, if someone comes to you and says, I have this verse for you, why are they saying the Lord gave me a word and told me to tell you? Why are they saying that? Why wouldn't they just say to you, hey, you know, this verse came to mind and, and I sort of wondered if it would be helpful for you. Can you see the difference between those two things? What does this one do on the screen? It builds up the pride. It puffs you up. It sets that person, they say, I have some spiritual authority over you. Do you think that's what the Lord wants? The Lord says, humble yourself. And there's humility and pride goes before the fall. And we go through all the scripture that tells us we shouldn't be pride. So if somebody comes to me and says this, even if they're going to say scripture after this, or they're going to say something that's good or something I agree with, I go, ooh, ooh, I, I'm not so sure about this because I'm not sure really the motive. I'm not so sure that if the Lord really did give you a word to give to me, he would want you to set yourself up in a prideful way. That doesn't really sound like that's from the Lord. So I would probably just outright reject somebody who phrased it this way. Does that make sense? In Galatians chapter 1, Paul goes and he says, hey, he's talking about the gospel and he says, the gospel is the gospel is the gospel. If anybody comes to you and gives you the gospel that's not the same one, he said, even if it's an angel or even if it's me, I come to you and I give you something that's not the gospel, you should reject it. And that's a standard we can have for God's word and for the Bible and say, hey, if somebody has personal revelation, that's part of why we have the Bible. So we can say, well, that's either from the Lord, we can either accept that, or we can reject it. So that's an important thing. So that's one of those things. Is the Bible complete? Yes. If we don't believe the Bible is complete, we can just be like, well, the Lord can tell me whatever, and I can tell you that the Lord told me whatever, and 
I don't know. So again, I would go back to and just sort of close it with this. Does personal revelation exist? Yeah, I do. I do believe in a powerful God who can speak to us. But I also believe if he gives you personal revelation, it's going to be clear and consistent with what is already in the Bible. And he's going to give it to you in such a way that it can be shared and held in the most humble of ways. I hope that makes sense. So I'll bring this to close today here this morning and we'll just ask these questions again to go back to the beginning. Like I said, next week we'll go back and we're going to hit four more aspects, attributes of the Bible. But I'd ask, why are you here? Why are you here? Is going after God worth it or not? Does he have anything worthwhile to say or do for you or not? I think those are questions we need to ask. The answer to these questions hinges 100% on the Bible. 100% depends upon the Bible. Is it God's word or not? Is it the words of God given to us for instruction or is it a total waste of our time? It's one or the other. It can't be either. And I am convinced, like I shared today, it's infallible. God's word is infallible. It's perfect. It's consistent. I believe it is without contradiction. It's inerrant. It is accurate. It is precise. It is very precise, especially for what it is. And it is complete. I believe it is complete. It has all that we need. All that we need to be instructed by God. And those things make me confident the Bible is God's word for me. So as we go through this series, I hope you'll join me and join us in, in becoming people of the book here. I'll pray and we'll close for today. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you've given us this Bible. This book. Lord, when we think about some of those facts and how consistent and coherent and easy to understand it is and how it has been timeless and how it has created over multiple hundreds of years and yet has a consistent story. How or there's things we'll even talk about coming up of prophecies fulfilled and wow, Lord, it is amazing. God, it makes me want to build my life around it. And God, when I read the Bible, I understand you are worth it. You are worth going after. You do have good things to say for my life. You do have input and instruction. Even though it's hard sometimes. Even though it grates against the things my flesh wants to do. Even though it's unpopular with my friends or my neighbors or the culture around me. God, my prayer is for each one here that we would do this math and say, well, it's either a waste of time or it's your words, God. And I believe it's your words. And I see that it's your words. And I'm going to be confident in that. And I'm going to go after that with my whole heart. Help us in that, Lord. Help us to be a church, a local church that is going after you. Help us to be people, your people, people of the book. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.